Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. If you're listening to this podcast after Friday afternoon, then Donald Trump is now the President of the United States. And with the presidency comes a raft of international challenges that will be his and his administration's responsibility from day one. This week I popped my head into the offices of a few of our experts to see what needs to be tackled on the first day of the Trump presidency. He's said that his priority is going to be defeating ISIS. I think that's a mistake. This is John Alterman, the director of our Middle East program. Because the threshold for what defeat of ISIS would be is very high, and the threshold of what ISIS would need to do to show it's not been defeated is very, very low. One of the challenges I think that the new president is going to have is how do you calibrate between rhetoric, which you can say immediately, and the results, which are often partial, which often take a considerable amount of time to accomplish. Um, Fighting ISIS is going to be important. Working with states is going to be important, partly because that's important to fight ISIS, but partly also because having capable allies in the Middle East is important as a way to undermine support for groups like ISIS, is important as a way for undermining the kind of threats that come from the Middle East, is important as a way to build capacity to serve American interests in the Middle East. I don't think he's figured out that piece. I think his instinct is to have a much better relationship with Egypt than we've had. I think our relationship with the United Arab Emirates, which has already become strong, will become stronger. I think Saudi Arabia is unclear because there's certainly elements of the Trump policy which are are going to be welcomed by them and elements that are very disturbing, including his seeming willingness to cut a deal helped by the Russians in Syria, which the Saudis see as a way to uh, invite Iranian influence into the heart of the Middle East. Another one of the president's uh, announced priorities is moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I'm not sure what that gets the United States. I can imagine a whole series of costs. If a person who sees himself as a deal maker were able to extract something significant from the Israelis in exchange for that, that would be a different situation. But, But as a way to show right off the bat that this president is unorthodox and doesn't care what other people do may turn out to, to appear a little bit reckless as there are reactions and responses to this and yet no real benefit to it. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, clearly, we're going to have an enduring problem with Iran. That was clear before. That was clear whoever won the election. That is clear. I think President Trump is going to have to deal with that not only at the beginning of his term. Whatever he does, I think he's going to be dealing with it at the end of his term. Trying to get some sort of greater stability in Iraq is going to be important. Uh, I suspect that sometime over the next four years, the president's going to have hard decisions to make about Jordan. 
which in many ways is in a vulnerable position and many things that, that President Trump may do may actually make the job of people in Jordan harder. Um, and then I think that there's a broader need for the United States to, to find a way uh, to contribute to more resilient societies in the Middle East. That's not to say it's a U.S. responsibility, but it's certainly in the U.S. interest to have societies that are more tolerant, societies that have more outlets for people and which shut down uh, radical movements when they arise, societies that have more viable um, economic platforms. A lot of the, the countries in the Middle East operate on oil revenues, which aren't going to be nearly as effective in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years as they've been in the past. And with oil at about half of what it was two years ago, it's not even as effective now to, to push societies along as it was two years ago. I think the U.S. has an interest in that. It's not easy to do. Certainly, the responsibility of societies in the Middle East is greater than the U.S. responsibility, but it's certainly in the U.S. interest to try to contribute to societies that are more resilient, more productive, and ultimately happier for the people who live in them because that's going to make Americans better off. One of the problems of the Middle East that I think President Trump is going to have to deal with is where should it fit in American policy? The Obama administration seemed to think that the Bush administration had put much, too much emphasis on the Middle East. And the Obama administration, I think very consciously, tried to walk away from that. I think at the end of the day, the Trump administration's policy is going to be engaged militarily, but not engaged on the societal or economic or political level. Um, the, the fear, and it's a fear that I have, is if you only deal with things militarily, it becomes a self-looking ice cream cone. It continues to create the problems that you have to deal with militarily. And I think one of the big problems the U.S. has had in our experience after 9-11 until now is how do you turn the corner on that? How do you prevent your military activity from creating a greater demand for greater military activity? That's a big problem. And it seems to me that if there's anything that is going to make the U.S. more secure in the world, it's going to be untying that knot of how do you either use military activity to diminish the need for greater military activity, or how do you back off from military, military activity, but make Americans safer at the same time. I think that's a big conceptual problem. Uh, and ultimately, the, I think the, the president's success in the security sphere is going to be judged by how well he addresses it. And now we turn to Asia and a man who knows a thing or two about the region. Mike Green was director for Asia on George W. Bush's National Security Council and is now our Japan chair, as well as the head of all our Asia programs at CSIS. It would be a mistake to try to begin solving all the many challenges in Asia on day one. And I would make the case for um, initiating a strategic review of Asia policy uh, across the administration. Um, this is not a team that was ready uh, on November 8th. And uh, now they're getting ready, but there are a lot of different views. and. Even with a well-prepared administration, um, your theory of the case on how you advance your interests in a region like 
East Asia uh, collides with reality. So it's, it's, it's worth taking the time, in other words, with the principals and with the key um, Asia people in different agencies in the NSC um, and the transition team really starting to think through what they're trying to achieve, uh, who their friends are in the region, where the challenges are, and what the message is. What's the message? And this is going to be a challenge because the region doesn't know quite what to make of Mr. Trump, and the same is true of, of, of Europe and other parts of the world. But beyond the first you know, day or week or month or so, um, they clearly are going to have to manage a China that is much more confident, much more coercive uh, towards its neighbors, um, and much more nationalistic. Uh, the right way to do that is not to unilaterally go at the Chinese with sanctions or um, uh, threats to the one China policy, although I do think there is something to be said for reminding the Chinese that this is a two-way street and that uh, we do have a, uh, an expectation they'll protect and respect our core interests just as we have faithfully respected the one China policy. I'm not troubled, in other words, by the kind of um, uh, shaking up uh, a little bit of uh, China's assumptions that we're just going to go along as if they're not creating so many problems for us. Continuing parenthetically, though, I don't think a change in the one China policy is a good idea or very likely. Um, so how do you deal with China? You don't do it unilaterally. Our great strength is we have friends and allies who are equally concerned about China's behavior. Um, and so building a team, um, starting first and foremost with uh, Japan, where, where Shinzo Abe, the prime minister, is ready to step up. He's ready to spend more on defense. Japan's the largest investor in the U.S. Mr. Trump wants to create jobs. Uh, Trans-Pacific partnership trade is a critical part of our influence and uh, credibility in the region. It's not going anywhere right now, that's clear, but begin at least talking with Japan about other issues like energy and infrastructure and so forth. Australia um, and Korea and our treaty allies. Um, and, uh, and we're going to need their help because some countries like uh, the Philippines are uh, under domestic political um, transition, populist government, where the president, uh, Mr. Duterte, has been vocally very anti-U.S. and pro-China, or Thailand, where the coup has created real paralysis and some tensions with Washington. So uh, to get the China piece right, they've got to get Asia right, beginning with the core allies we can rely on, Japan, Australia, and Korea, and then building out and coming up with a, with a, with a plan um, and uh, that's going to be key. North Korea will challenge Mr. Trump probably early on. They typically do with the new administration, with a nuclear or missile test. They should be thinking right away what the options are, how we'll respond, what's our declaratory policy. And if we don't do it together in unison with Japan and Korea, uh, we're going to be in big trouble. Because as soon as the Chinese see Seoul and Tokyo and Washington going in different directions, they see opportunity. But if Seoul, Tokyo, and Washington speak with one voice, it puts pressure on Beijing to start using their leverage on North Korea. They'll never pull the plug on the North Koreans, but they can make them scream or, or, or suffer a little bit, uh, so they start at least moderating behavior. I don't think there's an early or easy solution to the North Korean nuclear problem, so a lot of the strategy is going to have to be um, containing the problem, using sanctions to slow down their proliferation and weapons development, um, it's going to be a strategy that doesn't yield quick results and uh, settle in for the long haul, but, but be ready for provocation. I think there are some good people uh, on Asia coming out of this uh, uh, transition. Uh, Bill Haggerty, the designee, uh, reported designee or nominee for Ambassador Japan, is very good. Uh, led Boston Consulting there for three years, a 
strong political uh, figure in the U.S., um, Governor Branstad from Iowa in, uh, in Beijing, and then, of course, Secretary of State-designate um, uh, Tillerson and, and uh, Mattis. These are very strong figures, the kind of people you'd expect in any Republican administration. Uh, that's encouraging. I think re governments in the region are encouraged by that. But the administration will have to do a lot more to uh, make it clear what our strategies are, our priorities, to make it clear we're going to be close to our allies. We want them to do more, but we'll be working in concert based on common values, which has not been said enough uh, by this uh, new ad administration coming in. And uh, that while we're not going to take China's behavior on the South China Sea and East China Sea or steel dumping or other things sitting down, we're also not going to throw the U.S.-China relationship into complete confrontation because that's not what our allies and friends want. So the main thing is avoid being isolated in Asia. Shouldn't be hard. A lot of partners, a lot of allies want us there. And even the Chinese, while we're going to have some friction, still premise their role in the world on a stable relationship with the U.S. So... Uh, the administration comes in with uh, some tools to work with, initially some strong candidates for jobs, and we'll see where it goes. And that was Mike Green. We now turn to global health, a subject that hasn't received much attention, but where the U.S. remains a global leader. We hear from the head of our Global Health Policy Center, Steve Morrison. Well, there's a couple of uh, urgent things um, that will be present on day one uh, that will require some action. One is that the World Health Organization, the executive board, meets on um, Sunday, Monday to make a decision on who will be the three candidates to be the next director general of the World Health Organization, which is arguably one of the most important uh, positions worldwide um, uh, with respect to global health. World Health Organization's gone through a terrible time post Ebola. It's made some reforms, but there's a lot more work outstanding. So picking the right person, but more, even more importantly, registering the United States' commitment to seeing WHO led by an able personality and supported by the key member states. The U.S. is the single most important player in determining the future of this organization. So that's an immediate decision that needs to be made. And I understand that uh, Tom Frieden is carrying on, uh, for outgoing head of CDC, is still appointed to play this role on the executive board, but there's someone from the Trump administration coming with him, and uh, that's important. Another thing that needs some immediate action is to put to rest the controversy around uh, vaccine denialism. Uh, we had uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. invited to Trump Towers to meet with the president and, and his inner circle. Uh, they didn't control the message after that meeting. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy came down in the lobby and then he controlled the message and said, well, there's going to be a commission established to um, uh, re-examine vaccines. He's a vaccine denialist. This caused a bit of a storm. Uh, the um, uh, Trump administration, the, the, the president-elect's team, tried to sort of walk this back a bit. Uh, and I think clarifying exactly where they are will be very important in reassuring a community of public health experts, scientists, um, and, and uh, parents and medical practitioners about where the U.S. position is on this. Because if there's confusion, you can wind up with physicians, with parents, and others making the wrong decisions um, about vaccinating their children, and then you're, you're setting yourself up for outbreaks. 
of measles and other uh, of, of other dangerous uh, uh, diseases um, down the down the line. Um, I think a a a third point that needs uh, uh, attention very early on filling those key positions. Who's going to be the head of the CDC to replace Tom Frieden? Tom Frieden's been there since April of uh, 09 has done a sterling job, exceptionally high energy leadership through a very, very difficult period. Uh, he has um, uh, 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 finished. He's, he's, he's no, no longer there uh, in that role. And very, very important to, uh, for the Trump administration to, um, uh, to, to make a decision on who, who should fill that. Um, Ann Shukat is the principal acting deputy uh, running the operation. She's terribly competent. They could go with her as uh, there's a history of many precedents of going with career people that are highly competent like that, or they may go with an outside person, uh, but that needs to be handled. Also, the Office of the Global AIDS Coordinator, headed by Deborah Burks, terribly competent. This is a $6 billion program. Uh, we are supporting 11 million people on antiretroviral life-sustaining therapy. It's a uh, it's an extremely important position. Um, if they're if the decision is to carry on with Deborah Burks, that's a good decision. If the decision is to not do that but go with one of their uh, with someone new, uh, very important to not leave that agency um, adrift in this next period. My final point would be that I think the community uh, of interests that uh, uh, that. Uh, are so active and so important on global health, and that includes the faith community, it includes implementers, it includes advocates for all sorts of different dimensions of this uh, field, it includes uh, industry. Um, uh, that community is anxious at the moment. Uh, our global health programs, which depending on how you tally them up, are around, amount to about 35 percent of U.S. Uh, foreign aid and accounts for fully a third or more of the overall global effort are, are, are terribly important. We are the single global leader on these, whether you're talking about infectious diseases, TB, HIV, malaria, whether you're talking about maternal, neonatal child health, whether you're talking about health security, uh, uh, preparing ourselves against outbreaks like Ebola, SARS, uh, pandemic flu. U.S. leadership across the board on those areas is the sine qua non globally for protecting Americans and, and, and creating a global good that will advance the health and stability of the world. And it's very important that President Trump reaffirm those commitments, reassure a nervous public about the continuity that will be happening in this space. And I want to add, this is one area that um, uh, has gone through massive expansion, has enjoyed massive success, and has been built on uh, enduring, for 15 years now, enduring bipartisan support and generosity in Congress, even in the midst of hyperpartisanship around so many other issues. This is an oasis. This is a place where some of them, are, where there's an escape from bitterness and division, and where people have come together. Uh, to achieve remarkable historic gains in health. Uh, over the last 15 years, uh, President G George W. Bush uh, galvanized the, the most important new efforts on HIV, on malaria, 
on creation of the Global Fund and other things. Uh, President uh, Obama uh, took on board those gains, further reinforced and elaborated uh, them. Uh, President Trump can do the same thing. He, he, he can follow in that tradition. Uh, he can elaborate. He can innovate. We're arguing that he should be putting a special focus on adolescent girls and young women uh, in this particular period in low-income countries. That's something that could earn him enormous kudos in this next period. But my broader point is he should be signaling to Americans and to the world that we're going to stay on this path and follow in the traditions established by Presidents Bush and Obama in this particular area where we've had huge gains, earned enormous credit uh, from our partners, and, uh, and proven the value of investing those dollars. And finally to Europe, where Heather Connolly, the head of our Europe program, talks us through what decisions the Trump administration will have to make on day one. I think President-elect Trump will probably uh, look towards the Russia portfolio, and there certainly have been hints, I would say press leaks that have been refuted, that there may be an announcement of a very early meeting between President Trump and President Putin, perhaps focused on arms control, unclear. So I think as of day one, uh, that may be one issue. The other issue may be uh, related. Uh, it doesn't, it falls without, outside of my parameters, but Russia has invited the U.S. to these uh, Syrian talks in Kazakhstan. And would Mr. Trump either deploy, if confirmed, uh, Mr. Tillerson or General Flynn to uh, participate in Iranian-Turkish-Russian peace talks? That would be, uh, again, a very powerful message of a very new strategic realignment. For the countries of Europe, there's a lot of elections coming up. What, what should the focus be there? What do you expect the focus to be on? So I, I think European leaders uh, will uh, you know, seek the, the certainty if there is possible uh, possibility of seeking that certainty about NATO and the U.S. Uh, commitment to NATO. Uh, President Trump will be visiting Europe, uh, we believe, uh, first to the G7 meeting in uh, Italy, in Sicily, in May, and then the G20 meeting in Hamburg, Germany in July. So we do know uh, the president will be meeting a number of uh, European leaders fairly early in his tenure. Uh, we, it's unclear whether there will be a NATO summit. Uh, it had been planned for a summit in early 2017. I don't know if that will be the case or not. So there could be some early opportunities uh, for the Trump administration to begin articulating uh, its plans for NATO. But again, even during the confirmation hearings, we heard two very different messages about NATO, about Europe, about Russia. I think we'll have to wait and see exactly where that policy is going to come from. Is it going to come from the White House exclusively? vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the fight against uh, the Islamic State, uh, or will the other departments have a, a broader hand in shaping that? So I think we're going to be watching very carefully, really, where does foreign policy, uh, uh, where is it derived, and then who is shaping it? And that was Heather Conley bringing us to the end of our show. We'll be back with more next week, so as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>